This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Tonight, we'll imagine what might have happened if Apollo 11 had failed. Our Elder Care series kicks off with the story of two sisters and a tough choice to be made. Well, he was very worried about me because of my health. And under the circumstances, there wasn't, we couldn't do any better. I couldn't allow her to go back to her home. And she said, I'm just not able right now. We didn't realize what kind of problem she had at that time. The Sundial Writers' Corner takes us on an adventure down by the pond with one of the Young Writers' Contest winners, and we'll preview more amazing upcoming bicentennial events. That's next on the Public Radio Hour. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Brett Tannehill. Coming up this hour, we'll travel back in time as we continue to celebrate Alabama's bicentennial, head down to the pond for adventure with the Sundial Writers' Corner, and we'll get stranded on the moon in a creepy radio drama that imagines what if the Apollo 11 mission never made it home. That's all coming up in the next hour. You can also find a podcast of the show at WLRH.org and on the WLRH Facebook page. But first, let's launch our newest series of stories exploring the challenges many of us will face with elder care as we seek answers for loved ones in their golden years. Tonight, Katie Ganaway introduces us to Lee Judge and her mother, Eileen Henderson. Lee and Eileen share their elder care story about a difficult decision that had to be made after caring for Eileen's sister, Juanita Winningham. What are your memories growing up with Juanita? Oh, when I was a little girl, Juanita was always church-minded. And as I got older, she, I realized what a hard worker she was. When I was very young, she worked in the cotton fields picking cotton. And my other siblings also worked in the cotton fields, but I was a baby, unfortunately. I didn't have to pick cotton. Can I ask where that was? Um, it's somewhere in the Talladega area. So she, she did that when she was just a young girl. And after she married to help out with the income, she'd help pick sweet potatoes out of the field. And she worked in a cotton mill for years. And that was pretty tough, but somehow she managed to raise her family. And then she went to work at RMC, which is Regional Medical Center in Aniston. And she worked there for like over 25 years and retired. And unfortunately, after she retired, it wasn't, wasn't long until we started noticing that she was having problems with her memory. So that's so. the point where you decided that she needed to come stay with you. Well, this was after she had fallen and after she had been in the hospital for a while and then rehab. And then she came to stay with me. So, Lee, can you tell me about that time for you when you went to go visit, how that was? The worst part was watching my mom, who has arthritis and all the itises, watching her try to take care of her sister. Her, her sister's pretty tall. She's, I mean, she, she's not a, a big woman, but she's tall and... She was a lot to handle, and so watching my mom go through that, that was, that was the worst part about it. My mom did amazing for the condition that she's in, and, um, and I, you know, I don't blame her for, for taking in Aunt Juanita, but it was, it was hard to watch. What were the sort of struggles bringing her in to live with you guys? Oh, gosh, there, there was a lot. Oh, now, my, I have another sister. Her name is Ruth, and during the time Juanita went through the hospital and all, there were several times when she had problems, and we helped to take care of her. After she came to live with me, then she would come over and lend assistance, but it was a 24-7 thing. Finally, I, I got a baby monitor so that I could 
tune into her and and I can say that worked very well or it didn't work very well because I was hearing every little noise she was making (laughs) 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 which meant I wasn't sleeping that well but that worked out fine too because a lot of those times she was trying to climb out of the bed doing everything we could to keep her from falling out of the bed that part was really hard her health other than the dementia no problem with her heart or anything like that and after we got Juanita into the nursing home, then we would make sure that we would take turns and not both be there at the same day. And uh, that was a big help, but they have been just super to her. What was the point in time where you thought, okay, I, I really need to put her in an assisted living home or something like that. I need to transfer her somewhere else. She'd only been with me just a couple of months, but I have arthritis, and I could tell it was already breaking me down. And at the beginning, she was able to help some, but then it got to the point she was just dead weight. It was difficult to get her changed. Probably after spending several days no sleep, and I finally, um, DHR had become involved while she was in the hospital that last day. And I, well, actually the lady came to the house and I told her, I said, I I can't do this anymore. So we needed to do something. So she helped us to get her into this nursing home where she is now. And it's not a fancy place, but it's well kept. And the people there just really take time with her and I couldn't ask for any better. Lee, how was it for you when she made the transition from your mother's house to the the nursing home? I felt a lot better about it. (laughs) Even with Aunt Ruth's help um, and Dad's help, I I knew that the nursing home could do even further beyond that. So it was a big relief to me when she finally went in there. When she was at your mother's house, did you play a sort of role in helping them take care of your Aunt Juanita? I wish I could have, but being two hours away is, is hard. I still talk to mom every day, but I mean, that's all I could be was just moral support and give her my advice. And sometimes she took it and sometimes she didn't. So (laughs) I wished I could have done more, but I didn't know what else to do. Before we got her into where she's at right now, I called every nursing home in Calhoun, Talladega, Cleburne, and no one would take her because she didn't have Medicaid. I was feeling really stressed about that. This uh, place where she's at now, I had called them, and they said no, they could not take her. But then they called me back, and I told them that I was working on getting the Medicaid. They did allow her to come, and I continued on with getting the Medicaid, and it took about a month, I guess, all together, maybe a little more, and then it got started. When we went into the building, uh, Ruth and I kind of looked at each other, and we didn't know, and then we decided that the conditions were much better than at home. It was difficult to walk away and leave her, but it was the best choice. I would like to know how often you are able to go see her now. I tried to make it a point to go at least twice a week. What, What do you do when you go visit her? If I get there in time for meals, I, I feed her. And I just, I try and talk to her, but she, she babbles. And every once in a while, she might say one word that you can understand. And you can ask her yes or no questions, and she can answer the yes or no. So there's, it's like a disconnect in, in the actual communication. Like the, in the speech. The speech mm-hmm. to, to understanding. So it seems like mm-hmm. she understands. Mm-hmm what's being said but just can't speak it. So how often do you get to go see her, Lee? I've only been able to see her two or three times. I'm, I'm usually only down at, at mom and dad's for a day, so I, I don't get to go to Anniston very often. But the the first time I went in there to see mm-hmm. her, she recognized me. Mm-hmm. So that, that was emotional. <laughs> Yeah, she did. She looked at her and a big smile came across her face and then she started trying to talk and it was this gobbledygook. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when I got there, she was 
kind of upset. And some sometimes when I go in, she's she's trying to talk and she's kind of crying, you know. And when I went in, she was like that and took her hair and just kind of wrapped it around her head, and she just laughed. <laughs> You know, so there's there's good times like that. And so she got out of her sad, sad mood. So overall, would you say that she's happier at the nursing home? Or would you say it's about equal or? She's, yeah, I think she's, I think she's happier. She's being loved. That's one thing that keeps us all going is knowing that we're loved and appreciated. So you've talked about your husband and, and all of this, and I, I'd like to know how he sort of handled this sort of uh, when she moved in mm-hmm. and then when she moved into the, the facility. How did he handle all of that sort of thing? Well, he was very worried about me because of my health. And under the circumstances, there wasn't, we couldn't do any better. I couldn't allow her to go back to her home. And Ruth was, she was having some problems and she said, I'm just not able right now. We didn't realize what kind of problem she had at that time, but he was um, supportive. He got to where he did help me, but he knew it was really breaking me down fast. I didn't have any idea it would do, you know, break me down that fast, but 24-7 care was rough, so if I'd, uh, he would still be helping me. You know, if that's what I wanted to do, he supported me. Would you like to add any other things about Juanita or elder care in general? or? Well, um, yes, let me say this, that hospice came, and, of course, when uh, she came to the house, and they provided a lady that came toward the end. Actually, they had it fixed so that she could come every day. And when Juanita would get up every morning, she would be wet. Everything would be wet, clothes and bed and the the whole thing. And so she would come early. I'd be the first one. And she'd come and take care of her and get her a bath first thing in the morning. And then the, a nurse would come a couple times a week and check on her. And so we just got to know these people. and realized they had a calling and I'm so thankful that there are people there that are willing to go out and help the families who are going through this and give them encouraging words, being helpful. Do you have any advice for our listeners who might be taking care of somebody with dementia? Just take it one day at the time. Don't look out way way on out there weeks ahead or whatever because you never know and unfortunately with that, and unless that they get a miracle from the Lord, that's what they're going to be dealing with. And with Juanita, she has had it for for years now. And when it gets to the point where you've just gone, you know, you've gone the last mile. Don't feel guilty about putting them in a in a nursing home because my husband keeps telling me, said Ellie, you have got to take care of yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, you cannot take care of somebody else. Just keep a check on them and know that they're taken care of. And Lee, do you have anything that you'd like to add? Learn from what's happening around you and then be able to take that so that you don't have to, A, reinvent the wheel and B, so that you can, no offense, so you can (laughs) learn from the mistakes that, that were made the first time and then like mom said, don't be ashamed to, to one, ask for help or to let some licensed professionals take care of your loved one because that's, in the long run, that's the best thing that you can do for them. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. Thanks to Eileen and Lee for sharing their story. If you're trying to care for someone with dementia or other mental health problems, there are resources available to you. Check out the Huntsville chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness online at namihuntsville.org, the Huntsville Madison County Senior Center at seniorview.com also can help you answer questions about elder care. 
Find these links and a podcast of tonight's show at WLRH.org, where you can also share your elder care story. It's an issue many people must face, so telling your story might help you and help someone else. The 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission to the moon is next week, and as we celebrate one of this planet's most historic moments, it's worth remembering how dangerous and uncertain this mission really was. President Richard Nixon actually had a speech already written and ready to deliver in case the mission failed. And that's the basis of this fictional radio drama produced by American Public Media titled Moon Graffiti from the show The Truth, here on the Public Radio Hour. The Truth. Radio fiction from American Public Media. Eagle Houston, we rig your go for PDI, over. July 20th, 1969. You're looking great to us, Eagle. Program alarm, 12.02. Give us a reading on the 1202 program alarm. Roger, 1202, we copy it. What's a 1202? I don't know. Roger, we got you. We're going at alarm. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 400 feet down at 9. Forward. It's looking pretty rocky down there. Uh, switch the manual. We're uh, pegged on horizontal velocity. 300 feet down, 3.5. And, and Eagle Houston, we got data dropout. You're still looking good. 200 feet, 4.5 down, 5.5 down, 160. 160. Program alarm. 1201. We're go, same time, we're go. Nine forward, that's good. 120 feet, 100 feet. There's craters everywhere. Looks like we're getting low on fuel meal. 30 seconds. Okay, lights on, down two and a half. Forward. I'm going to keep on going. Forward, kicking up some I dust. Still can't see, can't we're see gonna the tap it. We're going to tap it light. I'm going to keep forward. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. Those words were the first few lines of a real speech. We're not making this up. It was written for Richard Nixon in 1969 by William Sapphire, and it's titled, In the Event of Moon Disaster. I'm Jonathan Mitchell. This is The Truth. We found that speech online. It's all over. You can just do a search. It was part of a contingency plan in case Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were stranded on the moon. Now the first moon landing, the way we remember it, seems almost preordained. But back then, they didn't know what was going to happen. As their crewmate Michael Collins orbited the moon, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin dropped to the surface on their ship's maiden voyage into a rocky landscape littered with craters, with gravity that was unfamiliar and untested. What if they crashed? Buzz, you okay? Yeah. You okay? I'm fine. Houston, this is Eagle. Do you copy? We horizontal? What's our orientation? Appears that we are horizontal. Yeah, feels like that. Houston, this is Eagle. Do you copy? I don't hear anything. Yeah, I can't tell if we're transmitting or not. What about Mike? Try him. Columbia, this is Eagle. Do you copy? That's not my computer. just reading gibberish. Are you there, Mike? Buzz, can you give me a fuel reading? Uh, and I sent one fuel and oxidizers are reading zero PSI. And Wait, now it's eight PSI, now it's four. It's going all over the place now. Air pressure's dropping rapidly. Do we have a meter reading on that? Looks like seven or eight minutes till there's no air left in this thing. Okay, verify LM suit circuit 36 to 43. That's verified. Let's get these helmets on. Can you hear me okay, Buck? Uh, look weak, Neil. Yep, we got antennas down and not really good at it. Okay. Noise is up. We'll put my antenna up. Okay, how do you read now? Okay. You read me all right? Yes. Okay. That sounds pretty good. Getting anything from them now? Houston, this is Eagle. Do you copy? Still nothing. Felt like we hit a crater and just spun around. Yeah, it was a really rough crater. Went into outland long, huh? I was busy worrying about those program alarms. Right. The hell's a 1202, right? They said we were good, and then that was fine. Roger. How's the cabin pressure? That looks like we're clear. You go first, Buzz. Yeah? Yeah, you're in a better position at this point. All right. <laughs> And the frame's intact. 
Okay. Latch is open. Okay. Here, Buzz, take my camera. Good thinking. I want to make sure we get pictures of the crash. I'm out. Okay. This is... On my right side, it looks like we're, uh... Well, we look like we're perched right up on the edge of a crater. Looks to me about 110, 120 feet in diameter. Here, come on. Grab my hand. Okay, there you go. What a sight. It's just magnificent desolation. Hard to know where to go. Yeah, it looks like the ladder's down. Probably just slide down the side. Roger. Okay, I'm gonna step off the LM now. Okay. Uh, All right, Buzz, just watch yourself. I'm gonna come down. Powdered, sandy, thin. I can, I can pick it up loosely with my toe. It's actually no trouble to walk around. Yeah, I agree. Hey, you know, look at this. Look at what. Do you notice what the dust is doing? Yeah. When, I, when I kick the dust, look at that. It's like a ripple. It just radiates out there. Look at that. It does exactly what my foot does. It's incredible. All right, let's assess the damage on the lander. Roger. It looks like we uh, we kicked up a lot of dust coming in. There's some scorching on what looks like hard rock. The ejector kept us from rolling into that crater. I'm gonna take a photo of this. I count three legs of the eagle missing. Radar and S-bands are both heavily damaged. I don't even see the VHF. Uh, sense stage looks intact. Yeah, but there's no way to launch properly in this position. We'd crash into those boulders. Yeah, or worse. I'm gonna move a little slower here. Just watch me so I don't slip on the... Neil? You gotta see this. What? Uh... Good Lord. The fuel cell. Exhausted our fuel supply. <laughs> Exhausted's one word for it. Guess we're grounded. Still got two hours of air left. Let's initiate the geological survey. Oh, great idea, Neil. Part of the mission, Buzz. I suggest we get the radio working. The radio's dead, Buzz. And we could describe the crash Buzz. and tell them what happened and say goodbye. The radio's dead. We just have one final goodbye to the wife and kids. That's all I want to do. Right you now. saw how scorched the casing is. God, yes, okay. You know, we have the flag, Buzz. We should plant that. Sure. I'll help you plant the flag. Yeah, this is a good spot. If I can just keep turning it in there a little more. There's not much give there. Yeah, you know what? It keeps staying. coming. Yeah. Yeah, the problem is, is I can't. It's so solid. There we go. There you go. Yeah, there's a little telescoping rod that comes out at the top here to hold the flag out. Uh, doesn't go all the way out. Look at that. It sort of droops at the end of there. Looks good from here. It's certainly something I would salute. Oh, oh, whoa, 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 okay. There it goes. Pick that up there. You ready? I can see my reflection in your visor. Here we go. Sort to capture the spirit of the American astronaut. Stuck on the moon, two hours to live. It gives a big thumbs up. I hope this film can last a long time. I don't think it's going to be developed anytime soon. Now, Apollo 12 is going to go up? Yeah, after this, I'd be surprised if there's any space program at all. 
I bet by the year 2000, I'll have a base up here. Maybe they'll build some memorial up here for us. That reminds me. Oh, right. I forgot yeah, we had a memorial. Yeah. Here. Here it is. Here lies a memorial to Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chafee. Yeah, Ed was... He was my neighbor. Yeah, Ed was a good guy. Yeah, he was. Here, I got a couple of medallions here. For, uh, those cosmonauts. Yuri Gagarin, here you go. Here's your spot on the moon. Vladimir Komarov, you now have a place on the moon. Rest in peace. How many people do you think they'll bury up here by the time they're through? However many it is, it's a drop in the bucket when you consider the entirety of mankind. We should walk back to the LM. They'll find our bodies more easily. Well, our footprints will be here for the next 10 million years, so I think they'll find us. Yeah. It's a shame to just leave footprints behind. Why should we? Why should our legacy just be footprints? Let's write something. Let's write something in the dust here. You know, it's like uh, I recently helped my friend pour some concrete into his backyard for a porch. And we had his kids write a little message there. It was very... It's going to be there forever. What do you think we should leave? What's the message? I don't know, Buzz. I mean, look around. The scorched rock. The LM's all over the place. We'll be here. The crash light speaks for itself. There's... Nothing more I can say about it. Yeah, well, I'm feeling kind of winded anyway, so... You know, I've crashed so many times. Yeah, I've always managed to squeak by, but... When I graduated from flight school at 220 feet, 13 forward, and 11 forward, and it was... Five and a half down, nine four. That's good right there. Three and a half down. Hundred twenty feet. Hundred down. Three and a half down. Four. Buzz, Buzz, Buzz. What? Snap out of it. What? I'm fine. I'm fine. I better. Oh, I better lay down here. Yeah. Good idea. Sit down. It's really, really pretty up here. God will find us on the moon. Yeah, I think God will find you. Yeah. Do you ever wonder why we're here? What we're doing up here? With the space program? Yeah, like... What are we doing up here? What does this all mean? That's hard for us to decide. Yeah, you're right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a Mother Earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. 
In ancient days, men looked at stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. In modern times, we do much the same. But our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied. But these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. Moon Graffiti was produced by myself and edited by Hilary Frank. Matt Evans played Neil Armstrong. Ed Herbstman was Buzz Aldrin. That speech at the end was written by William Sapphire for Richard Nixon in 1969 and performed here by John Ottavino. I'm Jonathan Mitchell, and you've been hearing The Truth. Woo, told you that was a little weird. And hopefully puts a little extra context on the lunar landing as we prepare to celebrate the 50th anniversary next week. Thanks for listening to the Public Radio Hour. Coming up, Sally Warden pays us another visit to talk about upcoming bicentennial events, and the Sundial Writers' Corner begins its celebration of winners of the Huntsville Literary Association's Young Writers' Contest with a story from Megan Bailey. That's next, right after this break. hear that sense of urgency in the music? Well, we feel that same sense here at WLRH as we strive to reach our fundraising goal for this year. We're hoping that listeners who have never given will go to WLRH.org, click the blue donate button, and help us raise $50,000 by the end of July. Those dollars ensure that everyone can keep listening to great music, news, and stories here on WLRH. Next time on City Arts and Lectures, New York Times columnist David Brooks talks about how his personal religious journey, from Judaism to a broader spirituality, has led to a sense of fulfillment. That's next time on City Arts and Lectures, on this public radio station. Catch City Arts and Lectures here Thursday nights at 8 on 89.3 HD1 WLRH. The Dixie Derby Girls Roller Derby League will play their annual Skate Wars home bout at Insanity Complex in Madison on July 13th. The Junior Derby team, the Rocket City Rebels, will play about at 4.30 p.m. and Dixie will take the track for their Rebels vs. Empire Mixer bout at 7. A portion of the proceeds benefits Kids to Love. This is a family-friendly event. There will be a costume contest and prizes. Ticket information at InsanityComplex.com and on the Dixie Derby Girls Facebook page. You are listening to the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill, with Katie Ganaway Producing. The Sundial Writers' Corner is one of WLRH's longest-running traditions, which airs in its regular time slot Monday mornings at 9 o'clock. Sundial features Tennessee Valley wordsmiths sharing their poems, stories, commentaries, and other musings. And each year, Sundial shines the spotlight on winners of the Huntsville Literary Association's Young Writers Contest. Tonight, we'll hear a story from Megan Bailey, a rising eighth grader at Liberty Middle School in Madison, who won the honor for Best Short Story in the Junior Division. A Bitter Enemy, Megan Bailey. Beautiful, kind, gentle, but deadly. A crisp white blanket of snow lies in front of me, like a blank canvas waiting to be explored. Iridescent snowflakes swirl around me in the howling wind. Each snowflake is different, like a friend. But when did the snow become my enemy? Today the sky was as blue as the sea and clearer than glass. Therefore, I never would have thought in a million years this storm would roll in faster than a bullet. My best friend Hope and I live in a rural area where there's nothing but tall, aged trees for miles and miles. The closest grocery store is about an hour away. We live in a quiet little town up north where everyone in our town knows each other. Hope and I have been best friends forever and we've grown up in the country surrounded by animals. I grew up on a ranch with a bunch of four-legged friends running about. Hope lives on a cattle farm with her wild fluffy dog, Cody. We love the cold, frosty weather, but more specifically, the shimmery, glittering ice. 
Hope and I both love to play hockey and to wander in the snowy, icicle-filled forest. Every winter we go play hockey on a small pond that all the locals go to. But as we walk down the path towards the pond, the path we could have walked down blindfolded, Hope turns to me and says, We've been to this pond a million times. Why don't we go explore this other lake I found a few days ago? It has a super cool view of a crystal clear waterfall and lots of majestic antique oak trees. Sure, sounds good to me, I tell her with a smile. We take in the fresh scent of evergreen and the chill in the air bites at our noses. We start to walk down the uncharted path into the unknown. As I follow Hope up a mountain, I take in the fresh scent of the crisp winter air and listen to the bare trees whistle in the wind. Then Hope stops mid-step and smiles her goofy smile and shouts, We're here. Hope and I spend the next hour and a half walking around, exploring, and playing in this new winter wonderland. Icicles gracefully dangle from branches, and the gentle wind brings soft, sweet snowflakes dancing in the wind and around the trees. Then Hope spots a lake that is twice the size of the pond we usually go to, and it sparkles like diamonds. This is what I wanted to show you, she exclaims, putting on her old, worn-out ice skates. When I found this pond, I thought we would have fun playing hockey on it without anyone else in our way. Okay, I tell her and jump on the ice. While we're playing hockey, I see something that catches my eye in the distance, and I stop to examine it. It's kind of weird. Why doesn't it glisten like everything else around it, I wonder to myself. It is blurry, old, and discolored. In spite of the little voice inside my head telling me to run the other direction as fast as I can, we continue to walk towards the mysterious, ominous object that intrigues me. While I anxiously walk up towards it, the tall oak trees stare down upon me, scolding me like an older, judgmental sibling. When we see it up close, we could see the old gray wood, the dead vines that curtain around it, the moss growing upon the tree, the old tire swing that hangs from it, and the little window that kids once used to daydream out of. While Hope gazes up at the treehouse, I notice that it starts to snow. A sudden rush of panic washes over me as I think to myself, we're trapped. I can't see in front of me and I don't know which direction we came from. Our footprints had disappeared as a new blanket of snow was covering up our only chance of finding our way home. We quickly try to scurry up the treehouse, breathing heavily. I look back and see nothing but white, and the feeling like I'm in a snow globe is all I can think about. This bitter, frosty, and cold enemy looks at me feeling helpless. It's laughing and mocking me. I hurry up the treehouse, refusing to let the snow win. Then all of a sudden, Hope slips on an icy branch and falls down the tree, cutting her leg. She tumbles down the tree, branches scratching like a cat's claws, tearing her skin apart as she screams and tumbles onto the blanket of snow. I quickly hurry back down to help her and shout, Are you okay? I barely hear her response against the wind, screaming at us, telling us to leave, that we aren't welcome. I'm fine, she insists. I can definitely tell she is not okay, but I do not want to waste time talking. I carefully, half-rushing, help her up into the treehouse. My fingers are beginning to turn into ice cubes. Finally, after a moment's peace, we settle down, trying to figure out what we're going to do next. Then, boom, crack, snap. The rustic, honest wood had betrayed us. The snapping wood beneath sends broken icicle shards flying down like little needles. The old treehouse has given in, and we now fall from it. This once-loved wood collapses down under us and into the vast sea of snow. We propel down the mountain, slipping on the ice that hides beneath the innocent, fluffy snow. I cut my arm on a fallen tree, staining the pure white snow with a puddle of red. We come to a crashing stop, plunging into a cave. Silence. A silence falls over the cave, leaving a chill down my spine. The cave is nothing but darkness, except for the minuscule amount of light coming from the top. In the faint light, Hope asks me, Are you okay? Clearly not seeing how horribly I cut my arm, I pull my heavy coat over it and respond yes, I say trying not to let the fear and pain slip into my voice, then ask her the same question, trying to pull myself together. Looking up at the sky, losing hope, wishing for the best, but expecting the worst. We're never going to escape this dungeon of a cave, I thought to myself, until I see it. Blood. I see the blood dripping from my arm and panic. Realizing now how much my cut burns like fire and stings like a bee. I frantically look around, wondering if Hope is back from looking for a way out. I then rip a soft strip of fabric off and pull it around my wound to help stop the bleeding and then hear a loud echo. I look up to see Hope, who is out of breath, 
panting, but has a look of determination on her face. I found it, saying while turning around, signaling me to follow. There's another opening about five minutes away that's not blocked by a tree. Okay, but how steep of a climb is it? Because that's why we couldn't go out of the other one, I question her, while noticing Hope is limping. But I remain silent. We smell the muskiness of the cave and can feel the dry, cold air coming in and out of our lungs. I look up at our only hope of escaping, racking my brain on how to get up. We then have no other choice but to climb up to safety. I climb up first, Hope right behind me, feeling the evil wind still howling and finally seeing the light again. As we near the top, I think to myself, we made it, we didn't die, but how? My train of thought is interrupted when I reach the top and helping Hope up. I feel the slight warmth of the sunrise welcoming us after our bitter fight with a frosty enemy. We start to find our way home, looking for the landmarks that we remember. Back then, we used to think of the blizzard as a curse, but now as a wake-up call to live, love, and appreciate life. As we sit here in the treehouse where it all went down and relive every moment as if it had just happened. We had rebuilt the treehouse as good as new soon after we recovered from our injuries. We spent all of our free time hanging out in it. Most people would be scared to death going back to the place that almost killed them, but not us. We see it as a symbol of one of the most significant moments in our life. We used to come here often, but now things have changed. We're 18 now and going off to college. This might be the last time we sit in our treehouse together. So as we sit in our beloved treehouse one last time, taking in and remembering everything before we leave, the sudden snap, the scent of evergreen and blood, the snow feeling like blades against our faces, and the dark, silent cave, we sit together in silence, at peace, and for the last time, breathing in the fresh air, feeling the familiar wood. Most of all, we remember the miracle that saved us and had forever changed us. Goodbye, I think, looking around me. That was Huntsville Literary Association Young Writers Award winner Megan Bailey, featured in the Sundial Writers Corner. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. In our final segment, Sally Warden, Executive Director of the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee, pays us another visit to share some more upcoming bicentennial events as we continue to celebrate Alabama's 200th birthday. That's right, Brett. My timing is good to get here for the taping because we've got two things going on this Saturday, July the 13th. First of all, down in Triana, they are having a historical marker unveiling. I don't know if you remember, I told you this before, but Triana is turning 200 this year as well. So they are having a historical marker unveiling this Saturday at 10 o'clock down at the Triana Municipal Building. Triana's government went on hiatus for a while once they formed 200 years ago, and in 1964, they rechartered their government. So this historical marker is actually honoring those community leaders that rechartered the town of Triana back in 1964. And uh, skipping ahead uh, just a moment before we get to this next event, uh, there is the historical marker challenge that is currently uh, ongoing, uh, hosted in part by the Huntsville-Madison County Historical Society. And I think this is just a really neat thing to encourage people to go out and find these little special places of history in their community. So tell us a little bit about the uh, historical marker challenge. As a matter of fact, that historical marker that's being unveiled on Saturday down in Triana will have to be added to these trails now. Brand new. The Huntsville-Madison County Historical Society has almost 125 historical markers placed all over Madison County. What they have done as a new project in honor of the bicentennial is to make up seven trails of these historical markers. There's one out to the north northeast part of Madison County. There's several in downtown, one specifically downtown Huntsville, another one in the greater Huntsville area. There's one out more in the western side of Madison County. And you can go online and find these trails and then go to the trails, enter the codes on the trails, and once you have gone to a certain percentage of them, you're eligible to become a local history scholar and receive a free medallion. That's pretty cool. As a matter of fact, Brett, guess what? They've had their first and second person to actually complete all seven trails. If you go to our Facebook page, you can see their pictures because they received their local historical scholar a certificate as well as their beautiful medallion. So we'll post a link to that information on uh, the 
uh, the page for tonight's public radio hour. You can also find that information online at HMCHS. That's for Huntsville Madison County Historical Society. HMCHS dot info slash MKRS, short for markers there. So the historical marker challenge, that's great to hear. A couple of people have completed that. And and once again, the Triana historical marker unveiling this Saturday at 10 a.m. at the municipal building there uh, in the city. So we also have another great event happening uh, this coming Saturday over at the Rocket Center. That is right. This is a no-charge event, family-friendly. The Celebration Car Show is this Saturday from 9 o'clock until 5 p.m. at the Space and Rocket Center. And this is a special car show, not just your average car show. This is all of the cars back between World War II through the moon mission. So 1945 to 1975 are the vintage of these cars, many of which were owned by the Redstone Arsenal and Marshall Space Flight rocket families. The star of this show is going to be the fully functional replica of the lunar roving vehicle. In other words, the moon buggy the one that Polaris has created uh, in honor of the 50th um, anniversary of the moon landing. Its debut will be at this car show on Saturday at the Space and Rocket Center. And then looking ahead, uh, uh, lots of great things happening the following week uh, for the 50th anniversary of the lunar mission, the Apollo 11 mission. And one of those things happening on July 16th at 9.32 a.m. over at the Rocket Center. It's the big global rocket launch. That is right. They are hoping for hundreds of thousands of people all over the globe to simultaneously launch at 9.32 their rockets, no matter what time it is where they live, to launch their rockets going for a Guinness World uh, Book of World Records on that one. So they're celebrating the launch of the Apollo 11 mission and then, of course, the moon landing anniversary uh, coming up on July 20th. So just putting aside uh, that for a moment, uh, we have a number of things that are already sort of underway as we continue to look at bicentennial events, including the We the People, Alabama's Defining Documents exhibit, uh, now on display at the Museum of Art through August 11th. That's right. This is an exhibit you do not want to miss once in a lifetime uh, because these these constitutions will not be on display forever. Uh, now through August the 11th, all six of Alabama's newly restored constitutions, along with the Ordinance of Secession when we seceded from the Union back in 1861, are on display. This is a gorgeous exhibit. Even if you aren't a history buff, it is not a lot of sitting there reading, looking, but the cases... Handmade cases have been made to hold these precious documents. They are outside of Montgomery and probably will never be outside of Montgomery again. The Making Alabama Traveling Exhibit uh, is over at the Huntsville Botanical Garden in the Guest Center. Uh, that is open to the public. You do need to uh, get, a, get a ticket to get in the garden, but you can stop by and see this exhibit on display now through July 31st. That's right. This is celebrating the past 200 years of Alabama's history, telling the stories of the decisions and the turning points that shaped Alabama's history, culture, and geography. They also have some other things in the Guest Center as well that you can enjoy free of charge. There's an art exhibit um, of all 60 of pictures of all 67 counties throughout Alabama, a state symbol mural by Laura Walker that they had specially painted for the bicentennial is also on display right there by the Dogwood Cafe. You can see things that were associated with Alabama that you didn't even know we had as state symbols, as well as paintings by Christina Wegman of local historic sites. I actually went and saw this already. It is very cool, folks. Uh, if you get a chance to go and check it out at the Huntsville Botanical Garden, uh, you have until July 31st to do so. Uh, so what else do we have, Sila? We have uh, the Sweet Homegrown Alabama uh, exhibit that also is, at the garden. That is correct. Once you go to the free of charge exhibit that's there in the guest center, if you want, if you're a member or if you uh, buy an admission ticket, they have all sorts of fun activities going on at the garden. One of them is the George Washington Carver's Jessup Wagon. Now, I never knew this existed, but it is very specific to George Washington Carver. They have a replica of that there. They also have a scavenger hunt of state symbols that you can wander through the garden and learn about the state symbols of Alabama. Also, in um, several of their gardens, they have heirloom plants as well as the traditional Alabama crops. 
over at Constitution Hall Park, the Free Speaker Series uh, continues. Can you tell us a little bit about that? On Tuesday evenings are the Speaker Series at 6.30, and on Thursday evenings are the free concerts. But in the Speaker Series, um, upcoming topics include the CSS Alabama with Ed Sims, the Rocket City Civil Rights with Sonny Herford IV, as well as Richard Bailey's Neither Carpetbaggers Nor Scallywags, Black Office Holders During the Reconstruction of Alabama from 1867 to 1878. Those are the remaining three um, in the speaker series that take place Tuesday at 6.30. On Thursday evenings, if music's more your thing, you can bring a picnic supper and listen to free live music. Uh, upcoming acts include local, local Stillwater, Joshua Smith, and Milltown. Even more at Constitution Hall Park, actually. On Saturdays are free family fun nights. So from 4 to 7, you have uh, the park is open with no admission charge with for history and open houses, including tours, reenactments, demonstrations, and hands-on activities. Well, very cool, Sally. We have a lot of things happening in the community, and I look forward to you coming back and telling us more. Thank you so much. Thanks to Sally Warden, Executive Director of the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee, for updating us. You can find a complete listing of bicentennial events happening around our community on the Huntsville-Madison County Convention and Visitors Bureau website. That's at huntsville.org. Thanks to you for tuning in tonight's Public Radio Hour, locally produced community radio made possible by donations from listeners just like you. If you think our community needs more local voices and local stories on the radio, support them right now during our summer fun drive. And if you can't make a donation, you can at least share a comment. Either way, we'd love to hear from you right now. Just go to WLRH.org and click on support. Don't forget you can hear a podcast of tonight's show and find links to some of the information you heard. You can also explore past episodes on our website. Just look under the Programs tab for the Public Radio Hour. Tune us in every Thursday night at 7, right here on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm Brett Tannehill. Good night. If you're interested in exploring the history of Huntsville and Madison County, the Madison County Marker Challenge presents a fun opportunity. Local historical markers are organized into a series of trails. You can follow the different marker trails and earn awards as you explore. Information is online at hmchs.info slash mkrs.